The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 237. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a time lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart team. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding. Position universe. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Hello, I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Ta-da! She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the fifth Doctor story, Snake Dance. And joining me today on the panel are Father Cory Stika. Hi, Father Cory. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, remember to uh, join the StarQuest fan club by texting StarQuest to 66866. That's right, send StarQuest to 66866, and then you'll follow the directions and be part of the new StarQuest, the continuing StarQuest fan club. It's just a new way of joining it. Sorry, I keep calling it new, but it's not new. It's actually been around a while. All right, let's talk about this Doctor Who story, Snake Dance. Jimmy, could you give us a a quick recap of this? Last season on Doctor Who, Tegan became possessed by a psychic snake monster thing called the Mara, but it was driven out of her and killed, or so everyone thought. Turns out, this season, that the Mara is still in Tegan's subconscious and begins to reassert itself, finally taking full possession of her. It wants to get to the planet Manusa, where it was defeated 500 years ago, so that it can take physical form again and fulfill its dreams of conquest. (laughs) It thus manipulates the TARDIS crew into going to Manusa, where they're about to have a a once-in-a-decade ceremony that reenacts the defeat of the Mara. Only this time, the Mara arranges for a great crystal that focuses mental energy to be used in the ceremony, allowing it to tap into everyone's fear and assume physical form again. Fortunately, the Doctor is helped by a Manusan sage who has spent years purifying his mind to fight the Mara when it reappears, Together, he and the Doctor do mental battle with the evil snake thing, freeing Tegan, and allegedly destroying the Mara forever again. Allegedly. (laughs) That's a good recap. Well, that's what the Doctor says, but he said that last time, too. Although the the Mara has never returned in... uh, Not in TV, but in in spinoff media, of course it has. Mm -hmm. Okay, of course. So, a couple interesting things in there, and we could bring these up as we as we go along. Uh, first, this is the first story of the Fifth Doctor's second season. So that's I just thought that was interesting uh, to, to note to point out there. And his last season. Y- yes. Also, uh, the producer, John Nathan Turner, promised that every story this season would have something from Doctor Who's past. And right. so we get returning classic villains and monsters. And for those who are really pining for the days of yore, 11 months previously, we get the Mara. <laughs> yeah. And the reason he promised that is because it's the 20th anniversary season. It's the 20th season of Doctor Who. And so that's that's why he made that yeah, promise. We're, yes. we're coming up to the Five Doctor special here pretty quick. Speaking of flashback to past. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. So 
one of the things that, that kind of jumps out at me in this story is first that the the ten year every ten years they have this festival, and that brings to mind the Oberammergau uh, festival that they have in Germany every Passion Play, the Passion yep. Play that they do in Germany every ten years, uh, which is a such a huge production they can only do it every ten years. Hmm. And I thought that was an interesting. I wonder if that was uh, sim- something similar or in their mind when they came up with this idea. Do you know if that if other if there were if there used to be other types of uh, every decade sorts of festivals or plays like that? Well, um, in the classical world, there were games that were done like yeah. quinquennially every five years or quadrennially every four years, and those had a religious component, and they were you know festivals as well. So I'm familiar with those. I I kind of doubt. I mean, it's possible that they could be thinking of Oberammergau here, but I kind of doubt it because the dominant themes here are Buddhist rather than Christian. Right. That's I true. mean, that's that's the religion that is principally in the author's mind, and that's why they give a bunch of the names they do that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like Manusa and Tanha and other names that are in this story are taken from from Buddhist literature. Although I did read that the the whole snake handling stuff was a oh, supposed yeah. to be a reference to the Christian sex, right? That's true. So the uh, title "Snake Dance" it refers to a practice on Manusa where you pur- you do the snake dance and it like purifies your mind for future combat with the with the Mara. It's not really a dance. It's really sitting and meditating and mm-hmm. experiencing the flow of the world, apparently. But allegedly, uh, it is reported that the people were partly inspired by snake handlers here in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, snake handlers are a small group in the Protestant community that take the ending of Mark's Gospel in an interesting sense, because one of the things that it says in the longer ending of Mark's Gospel is that Jesus' disciples will take up deadly snakes and they won't hurt them. And this is, in in all likelihood, based on an incident that we see in the book of Acts, where Paul arrives on the island of uh, Malta, and they build a fire because it's cold and rainy, and and a snake comes out of the wood they've piled up for the fire because it doesn't want to be burnt, and it <laughs> bites Paul, and he survives. And people are impressed by that. And so that's likely the basis, this accidental thing that happened with Paul and God protected him. But the snake handlers have taken this as in an imperative sense of it is proper Christian religious practice to deliberately endanger yourself by picking up poisonous snakes and handling them in a religious <laughs> ceremony. And uh, so there are very small communities that do this. And, you know, it is it is a dangerous practice. Yes. Yep. And partly in the inspiration for the snake dance. In fact, we're told at one point that the, the snake dancers do pick up snakes as part of their religious ceremonies. And we do actually see. Mm-hmm. The the snake dancer Sage pick up a snake and allow it to bite him, mm-hmm. and then he he has the doctor pick it up and the doctor allows it to bite him, right. and then by their super mystical mojo they're able to survive the poison. Mm-hmm. But 
the authors either didn't know or didn't remember a lot about the snake handlers because they said they were in Arizona and really they're they're in Appalachia for the right. most part. <laughs> and you know, and unfortunately, sometimes these snake handler churches, their pastors find out their faith isn't as strong as they thought it was because <laughs> they end up dead. Yes, yes, that, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, so th- very interesting, though, the, the the snake symbology in in our culture as crosses cultures. I mean, we, as human beings, I think everywhere we're we're mm-hmm. generally afraid of snakes. Snakes are generally, you know, especially poisonous snakes have been bad for us throughout history. I, anyone who's ever worked with wood in a wood pile knows you don't just stick your hand in willy nilly, <laughs> like yeah. as Paul learned. Uh, so well, it's uh, it's in our genetics. Even chimpanzees react to, that have never seen a snake yeah. will react negatively to seeing a snake. Right, right. Our our ancient enemy. So uh, it's interesting to see it here and kind of expanded. And this idea, like so often, in fact, there's a lot of in sci-fi creatures that are lizard-like or snake-like that mm-hmm. that are that they elicit basic responses that in spiders, <laughs> so, like Martin yeah. Clunes. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Martin Clunes plays Lawn, the uh, mm-hmm. the young man who's sort of at the center of of things here, the 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 major guest star who goes on to Martin Clunes goes on to have a major career. He is a a major yes. actor in Britain, and I I was reading how he's constantly being uh, tweaked and teased about his outrageous costumes that they made him wear, <laughs> and this which was his first. Television debut. I mean, this was, was his first well, acting job. I, I read it was. It might not have been his first television debut, but this was his first major role. Yes. Anyways, oh, okay. where he he had like a small part in another in one of like the night at the movies oh, okay. or something like that. With, with IMDb uh, listed this as first, but yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. He had like apparently a smaller role, but this is his first major one, and he gets to play this lawn character who's the son of the Federator. Right. So he's a high person in Manusian society. And he is a young man who is moody, arrogant, pouty, bored, condescending, and a wastrel. And so he is he is almost an entirely unsympathetic character. He does he looks weird. There's just something mm-hmm. about him that looks weird. Yeah. And and he then he wears these weird costumes. I don't think it's all down to the costumes. I think it's down to the way he acts and the fact he looks weird at this age in this role, he's, the way they've made him up, and he's wearing the weird costumes. Which do, by the end, I mean, I, I, I'd read about the costume thing, and I'm going, okay, he's in this kind of bathrobe costume early mm-hmm. on, and then they put him in, which looks weird, and then they put him in a sort of more adult, it's reminiscent of the past, but not any yeah. actual Earth mm-hmm. culture, but a more adult costume rather than the bathrobe costume, and that's actually better to my mind that's not that bad but then at the end when he takes part in the ceremony it's the most <laughs> ridiculous costume ever on doctor who i mean wow yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks like a little child's romper or something yeah i mean the the, the helmet kind of sort of remind me of the stereotypical aztec type helmet that you've you've seen pictures of you know the ceremonial helmet but yeah the the, the actual Sad part, I've seen, you know, mass vestments that look very similar to that. But that's another story <laughs> for a different topic, uh, yeah. whether or not they should look like that. But, yeah, it was it was uh, very odd, to say the least. I, I thought the helmet looked a lot like something you might see Joan Crawford wear in her later days. <laughs> it was like a head, <laughs> head wrap. <laughs> it was, uh, so, and I think he did a pretty good job as far as a, you yeah. know, a guest character. I think, you know, it was a pretty well, interesting character. He, he played, played the spoiled... Bad. 
he played yeah. the spoiled brat really, really well. Cause that's really what yes. he was. He was, you know, the son of the leader of the Federation. And so of course he right. was, he had all the, you know, he had everything handed to him on a silver platter. It's a bit of a stereotype, but yeah, yeah, which is fine. It's interesting. Manusian society is, it's regressed, right? It's on another planet, so obviously it's from after when humans have moved out into space with with that technology. Oh, I don't know that they're humans. They may be. They look human, but on Doctor Who, looking human doesn't mean you are. Right. Right. They don't even do the Star Trek head bump necessarily. But they've certainly they certainly don't have high technology. They're they're more of a it's reminiscent, to, I guess, like of um, Middle Eastern mm-hmm. countries around five hundred, six hundred years ago, at least. You know, that's sort With of lashings of the Renaissance and things yep. like that. Yeah, yeah, bits like that. I, yeah. I did like in the design. So this is a pretty interesting culture that they've thought mm-hmm. up, and the visual design of the culture is interesting. The customs of the culture are interesting because they have all these customs that are connected with the uh with the 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 ceremony mm-hmm. that they're doing. They like they're these they they're called demons but they're these people in costume who like leap out and play pranks on you and when they prank you you have to give them a coin. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know that's an interesting cultural detail. Also um I don't I don't know it, I, I mean, I don't know that I'd characterize this society as technologically regressed because they do rule an empire that contains three planets. Oh, right. And so they have that. Also, like, they have these candlestick holders Mm -hmm. that are very interesting that you can buy in the market. We see a lot of the market in this. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot going on in the market, but that one of the things they have there, and we also see them later, is these candlestick holders. They look wooden. And they have this ascending spiral thing that wraps around right. the what would be the candlestick stick, and that may be meant subconsciously to to hook into the snake imagery in the show. Yeah. But instead of a candle, they put a glow stick in them. Right, and uh, and that's kind of neat. Right, you know, to see like a glow stick holder. Also, they have these in the in the market. They have these businesses. One of them is a fortune teller. Another is a fun house with funhouse mm-hmm. mirrors mm-hmm. and they both have these curtains that are shiny and may look like they're made of little discs mm-hmm. but these curtains in the doorways and whenever anyone walks through one there's this electronic wind chime effect mm-hmm. that is clearly not being made by the things and that implies it's some kind of technology but every time okay. anyone goes in or out one of these curtains we hear the wind chime effect okay. well, I, I think they also said that this wasn't the 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 head the the headquarters planet for the federation but they were there the reason why this lawn was there was for this celebration and that's also why some of the other things were going on there in the market square um, which did very much look like kind of a traditional middle eastern even to this day if you go to a a market square in the middle east it looks very similar to what you see there right right. i guess i was thrown when it's when uh at one point nissa's reading from this very large reference book about the planet that they're headed to in, in that was in that, the TARDIS. That's yeah, the TARDIS. The, no, no, but <laughs> but she was reading from it and, and it said uh, their economy is subsistence agriculture and, mm. and, and so tourism that, and yeah. tourism. So I I guess that that's what threw me on that. Um, so the I do like there was a there was a right at the very beginning, Tegan comes out into the control room of the TARDIS and she's dressed very differently from her usual costume. Nissa. She's got this new, Nissa. N- sorry, Nissa. I, I'm gonna. I'm going to keep them straight. Nissa's dressed differently. 
And I like that this is funny that the doctor who is just so absent-minded, it's, the, the, it's a trait that we always see. And she's like, well, what do you think? And he's like, I think we're in trouble because, no, no. She's like, what do you think of my outfit? And I just thought that was a, a little funny. Uh, Except different. She, yeah. she, she never says it's her outfit. She, right. She, he eventually says, you look different. And then he moves on. Yeah. And there's this weird dynamic happening between the doctor and Nissa in this episode where the doctor is, for once, he's obsessed with something awful is happening here, and I've got to find mm-hmm. out what it is. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's not playing the usual, oh, there's nothing to this. We don't have anything to worry about. He's very much the opposite right. from from basically no evidence. He's 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 obsessed with something is desperately wrong here. Right. And when Tegan starts to get involved, it, he's he's instantly convinced that there's that the Mara is back, even though he right. doesn't really have evidence for that. Not that we've seen. So that's kind of that obsession of his, which is needed, to, which is I don't don't know, don't know I should say it's needed, but it's functioning to get the plot moving mm-hmm. isn't really justified on screen. And so it feels like it's wrong for him to be this obsessed. And he is then in this weird mode with Nyssa where they are just snippy mm-hmm. with each other. I mean, she is mad at him, apparently, for not noticing and complimenting her new costume. And and she continues through much of this to be snippy with him. There's even a moment near the end where they are going to confront the Mara. It's right before the final confrontation with the Mara. And they're going through these kind of, I guess, ruins from 500 years ago. And the doctor says, this way. And then he picks up Nyssa and puts her... Uh, on one side of a thing that she would mm-hmm. have had to step over, and he's being nice, but she then turns a sort of nice, but then she turns on him and says, "Thank you, that wasn't necessary." And it's so obvious she's being snippy that even the guy who's with him, the Manus- the Manusen guy, looks at the doctor and they share this moment of like, "Wow, she was mad." <laughs> Burn. <laughs> yeah. And, and and so I don't know why Nyssa is so snippy in this episode. Now, what I know behind the scenes is this is her anti-penultimate story. Mm-hmm. She has one more story, and then we have her exit story. And so I don't know, were they trying to build up her leaving, but my memory is that I don't recall her being this snippy with the doctor in the next story or in the one where she leaves. Yeah. So yeah. I I don't know why they have this mutually snippyism dynamic in this episode, but I didn't like it. I I I did like, on the other hand, where where they're actually cooperating. There's a moment mm-hmm. where the doctor is in prison, he's in a jail cell, and he He's got Nissa there in hiding outside the jail cell, and a Manusin comes in, and he's talk, and the doctor is talking to the Manusin about where the key to the cell is, and that gives Nissa enough that on her own initiative, without the doctor doing anything more than inflecting his voice in a certain way, Nissa knows she's supposed to get the key and bring it back, and I like right. that unspoken cooperation mm-hmm. between the two of them. Right. You know, mentioned, uh, you know, why is the doctor immediately on guard? And I, one of the things I noticed was, you know, right from the very first scene, he's 
aware that the the, the TARDIS is landing somewhere it shouldn't, which mm-hmm. is not uncommon. And well, exactly. it, it's a, it's but he it's landing at the coordinates that they put in, right? Right, and then but it wasn't the coordinates put, they wanted, right? And he puts them on alert because Tegan is the one who gave him the coordinates, and so right. why would she have given him these particular coordinates? And and, and he knows that there's there's some connection to the. I think he, he in, implies that there's some connection to the Mara in the Sumaran Empire. Uh, like he recognizes well, the name, and that that's something that that I. You know, like like you said, Jimmy, they don't really say it in in plot, but they they could have fixed so easily. Just have the doctor say to to Nissa's, you know, I've been worried about Tegan, or I've been concerned about this. That something's going on, and this is you know, this is kind of yeah. fulfilling my worries. Yeah. I didn't say anything because it was just kind of a you know, they could have fixed it with two or three lines written much easier than I did off the top of my head, mm-hmm. and it would have fixed that entire plot hole that the doctor just said, yeah, I was kind of right. worried that something actually was still going on. And that Sometimes led to that. But it was interesting, yeah. though, because it, it did say that the doctor was teaching both of them how to read the star charts to then give him the coordinates to punch into the <laughs> the TARDIS, which right. is something we see every once in a while in, in Classic Who is the doctor teaching the companions how to fly the TARDIS or have some aspect of using the TARDIS equipment. It, it kind of makes sense. You know, it's always good to have a co-pilot, a backup. Yeah. For emergencies. <laughs> For emergencies. So the, the doctor... Um, he ends up hypnotizing Tegan because she's having these nightmares, and that's where they, he realizes she's the Mara is trying to take control of her again, and gives her this device, uh, basically a transistor radio that she hangs around her neck. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, and it alters her perception of things. She's like the she's like got these binaural beats from the Monroe Institute going on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and she's I love the the Apple the old, the classic Apple i AirPod uh, Mark point zero one. In other words, old nineteen eighties earbuds. Yes, yeah, yes. Where it's like as big as the ear, but it sticks in. <laughs> also, I, I like how when she's she, she's the the doctor is able to completely cut her off from outside sound when she's got one earbud in, yep. <laughs> not <Yes>. two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, they they encounter they end up encountering the 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 son of the Federator, Lon, and his mother, and the director of the of the institute that, among other things, I, I, I gather studies the Mara. Yeah, but as a historical it, artifact, it, it's an archaeological institute of some kind that preserves yeah. relics from 500 years right. ago. And he's totally dismissive of the myth that the yeah. that the um, the Mara will return, which is a folk legend that those primitive snake dancers are all into. Yes, yeah. I, I like that he dismisses the Doctor as a as a, just another crackpot with a theory about the Mara being real, <laughs> and it's funny. And then he, but the the best part was when he's he's like. For instance, look at this artifact, and it's a you know oh. it's a mask with of the five faces of delusion. Six, six, six faces, six, of six faces of delusion. But there's only five, and the doctor says, "Hmm." So you put it on like that, right? And then he puts it on, and he says, "One, two, three, four, five, and your face makes six, six face of delusion, yeah. which is awesome. <laughs> I, it is awesome. But then they don't pay it off. That they mm-hmm. needed right. to have the six faces of delusion play a part in the ceremony." Right, and they right. don't. They just leave it in his office. Well, it was just it was it was meant to make the d- director look less than uh, reputable. That he did. Yeah. He was, well, you know, merely, he thought he knew everything, but he was he didn't know anything at all. Merely putting on the headdress with the five faces would make him look less than reputable. But especially <laughs> pointing out that actually the name makes sense once you put the thing on. Exactly. Is, right. is, is does so as well. 
the I, I wanted to comment, by the way, on on mm. Tegan's role in this story because mm. she gets to be more than a mouth on legs mm-hmm. in this story. She's not just shouty and things like that. We get to see her being afraid. Mm. We get to see her being confused. We get to see her being torn between mm-hmm. you know her normal personality and the Mara personality, and then we get to see her being the Mara. And so I was interested in the first two parts to watch that dynamic play out and, you know, see how the actress is, is doing with those different modes. And she, I thought she did quite well with them. Unfortunately, the Mara takes complete control by the end of episode two, mm-hmm. and we don't have Tegan back until the final scene. So right. we've got lots of her. When we get to see Tegan, lots of it is just her and the Mara persona. But I like the material that precedes that, where she's moving back and forth and having to deal with this situation as this suppressed personality and her subconscious is emerging. Yeah, Janet Fielding's gotten a lot of good work to do in the last few stories, the ones Mm -hmm. that were set in in Amsterdam uh, with Omega and in this one. And I I feel like they're giving her more, frankly, more than Nissa gets to do. Nissa doesn't get a lot. Well, and that's... Uh, Nissa has been termed by some the best character, the best companion that no one knew what to do with. <laughs> right. Because Nissa and Nissa, it, when they're not artificially putting them in this snippy mode, Nissa and the Fifth Doctor really click. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Peter Davison has said of all the companions from his time, Nissa is the one that he jibed with the most, that he thought fit his Doctor's persona the most. And mm-hmm. that's led to. Um, and I'm blanking on her name now, but that's led to Nissa being one of the most heard companions on Big Finish mm. because oh, of right. how much Peter Davison enjoys working with that character. Sure. Sarah and Sutton. The actress, yeah. Sarah Sutton, yeah. Yeah. And they were trying, I guess, to shake things up a little bit here. You know, she had been in this royal Trocken costume that was basically like, it looked like crushed burgundy velvet or something mm-hmm. yeah but it 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 spoke to her upper class status on trocken as does her accent which is very upper crusty right. right but they then for in this season she like changes costume every episode and in the final episode famously ends up taking off almost all of it mm. oh. but they maybe were trying to shake her up but they apparently felt that she, they wanted a more they didn't know what to do with the character they wanted to bring in someone that w- they had a plot for mm-hmm. and so they end up having Nissa leave even though Peter Davison didn't want it Sarah Sutton didn't want it they wrote her out of the show and they're going to bring in the new companion Turlo who at least for three stories it very definitely has a character arc yeah okay yeah interesting but they kept they kept Tegan yeah and Sarah Sutton had a long run I mean she ran all the way from the fourth doctor's era so right. I mean, so yeah. she she had a pretty good. She was most of Peter Davidson's run, mm-hmm. anyways. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, going back to to Nissa, I, I, or excuse me, Tegan. You know, I, I I like that. I will say I like this better than Kinda. You know, Kinda was the first episode. Yeah. You know, and this is kind of a sequel to that. I like this one better because you get to see Tegan be more of a character, that character mm-hmm. arc, and you get to you get to see evil evil Tegan, and she's yeah. pretty devious and evil and it was kind of fun to see by the way i noticed because the story that you know the mara previously featured in was called kinda which was actually the name of a people 
mm-hmm. that lived on on the planet Devaloka and other Buddhist names. Mm-hmm. The name of the story would be what would be familiar to the audience. And so unnaturally in the script, multiple times, multiple characters, including the doctor, refer to the Kinda world <laughs> instead of calling it. You remember back when we were on Devaloka? Right. Yeah. You know? They 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 mentioned like once that it was called Devaloka, yeah. but every other reference to it is the Kinda world, and it's like, come on, are you doctor? You don't normally refer to Earth as the human world. I mean, it has <laughs> right. a proper name itself, right? I, I I would argue. I mean, I'd say that you know that would be kind of our human nature, anyways. You know, like we don't, you know, we were talking about Star Trek. We don't usually talk about Konos. We talk about the Klingon homeworld. Oh, we did before it had the name Kronos. I guess now it depends on the fan. I would tend to yeah. say Kronos more. But, you know, it's, I, I just, I think most, most people will identify to the race that comes from the planet versus the name of the planet Maybe. if they're going to be, you know. And, of course, this is all theoretical as what we'll do in real life because we haven't met people from another <laughs> planet as far as we know and officially the government has told us. It depends but, on when this episode uh, comes out and whether the UFO report has yeah, come exactly. out of the Pentagon. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's interesting talking about Tegan be- becoming possessed. So in, in the Funhouse, which is which is interesting. I what like the Funhouse the... showman, by the way. Too mm-hmm. there's a Barker yes. that whose job it is to get people into the Funhouse, and he has yeah. He has an interesting role in the story as well. He he once he realizes that Tegan can talk to mirrors and sound spooky, he wants to make her part of the act. <laughs> right. 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 Not realizing. Now, <laughs> they, they they don't they don't mention his name on in the script, but it's it's uh, Dugdale is his name and he was played by Brian Miller who was Elizabeth Slayton's husband. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Wow, interesting. So so, he was the doctor. Another doctor connection there, yeah. Yeah. Uh so does she does the Mara possess Lon and Dugdale, or does it just possess Tegan? Well, it's in full possession of Tegan, but mm-hmm. it is oppressing Lon and Dugdale and a few other people. Right. And okay. you can tell because they start, their faces start to turn red, and they may get mm-hmm. a snake tattoo thing on their arm, and they they swish red food coloring around in their mouth so their teeth look funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But the only person the Mara actually speaks through is is Tegan. Right. Okay. And so it's the seat of the personality and the others are just being influenced by it. Right. Because I was wondering how much of Lon being a jerk and evil is Lon or and how much is the Mara? How I, I, how yeah, responsible in, he is. Yeah. In in Lon's case, they imply it's rather subtle, but they imply that Lon is uniquely vulnerable to influence by the Mara mm-hmm. because of his native dispositions. Okay. And and that's why he's a more suitable subject, for example, right. than Dugdale is. Right. Okay. And there, there, is, there is the point when Dugdale is being basically hypnotized by the Mara, where it's clear the two of them are, are speaking together. Lon and Tegan are kind of speaking together because it, it, the, the voice changes from Tegan's to Lon's as they're, you know, look at me, look at me. Do you think I'm going to hurt you? That, you know, and so there's, there is that, influ- it is influencing Lon, like you said, but it, it Tegan is yeah. the, the center of control. And I, Dugdale, I didn't really get the sense that they played it up as in he was being controlled by the Mara so much as he was hypnotized by him. Right, right. Which, the, I mean, the, you can it, still call it control, but. A lesser kind of control, but right, yes. yeah. 
more more like he was more like a robot than at that point than uh that yeah. that scene where Tegan you know really asserts control over Lon and then they they extend that influence to Dugdale really reminded me of an of uh the soap opera Dark Shadows. Mm. I don't know if many people remember it. I mean in fan in Dark Shadows fandom they obviously do, but Dark Shadows <laughs> was a was a soap opera that aired in America in the years around 1970. Mm-hmm. I remember coming home from nursery school and watching it, and <laughs> I liked it because it, unlike other soap operas of the time, it was a gothic soap opera, mm-hmm. and it featured supernatural horror elements. So at, at, after a certain point in, in, in its run, the main character was a vampire named Barnabas Collins. Mm-hmm. And they had werewolves and artificial men and uh, ghosts and L- Cthuloid monsters called Leviathans, and it was uh, it was a like afternoon horror show and a soap opera. <laughs> and oh, and they also had they also had parallel worlds. A bunch of it occurs in what they called parallel time, even though this was for like women watching, you know their soaps and they yeah. weren't heavy into the science you know it being yeah. 1970 you couldn't expect people to just know what a parallel world was yeah <laughs> but there was a particular sequence a story sequence in it that involved ghosts it was about something called rose cottage and the ghosts would appear and they would never speak but you would get a sense of what the ghosts were communicating by the reactions people had to them. And in that both that and the Leviathan storyline, the Cthuloid one, people would suddenly fall under the influence of of the villain, of the monster. And it would be in this subtle way. It wouldn't be like the, no, get out of my head, and then all of a sudden the person is on the other side. Right. There wouldn't be that dramatic crisis moment. It would be much more subtle. You would have the influence begin to be exerted, and then all of a sudden, without any dramatic moment, you suddenly realize, oh, they're on the other side now. Mm-hmm. And and that reminded me very much of how the Mara is operating in this, because you don't have this, oh, get out of my head moment with mm-hmm. any of these people. It's like the influence extends subtly, and then all of a sudden you realize, hey, they're on the other side now. Right. Right. Tegan, there's a little bit of, of her fighting it kind of at the beginning there but yeah but it wasn't like you know this massive screaming and raking at her hair or anything like that like you usually see right. in these kind of scenes it was much more subtle that's true so the the mara needs this great crystal in order to focus the minds of people to make him self manifest in the in the ceremony in the cave the snake cave yeah, it uh, needs their fear in particular right mm-hmm. which is a, a trope that we see a lot in in uh, science fiction where a creature lives off of the fear of the people. I mean, we saw that in the that awful Eleventh Doctor story, which I've blanked out of my head. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. yeah, Minotaur, the Minotaur that, one. That that which is not to be spoken of. Yeah, the God <laughs> complex. The God complex, right? Yeah. So this, I, the idea of the of the of evil creatures living off of fear and in it, it being nu- nutrition for them in a sense uh, is is here. But so they have this great crystal, and the the director of this archaeological institute has the great crystal, and so the uh, much of the third and fourth episodes are taken up with trying to get him to bring the great crystal to the cave for the ceremony, um, and 
We're told the Manusans were once a great civilization, very much advanced over what they are now, and the great crystal was made by them to absorb what was in their minds, but they were filled with restlessness and hatred, and that released the Mara and destroyed them, one (sighs) ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. (laughs) Oh. Actually, the reference in my notes for that is Forbidden Planet. Uh Uh-huh. They were building this crystal to have a psychic interface they could do stuff with, and it gave vent to their to their uh, darker desires and created the Mara. It's like, okay, I've seen Forbidden Planet, yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's the Id monster. Right, well, right, the, right. And, the, and of course, this is such a perfect crystal that it had to be human-made, had to be man-made, and it had to be man-made in zero-G and, you know, all this kind of thing. So they've got this zero-G engineering knowledge that they've lost and right. all this, you know, that it, it's not a natural crystal. Yep, that's true. And in the end... The doctor ends up defeating the Mara through the power of the mind and something he calls the still point. We haven't even mentioned, well, briefly we mentioned the the uh, the guru in the desert who is apparently yeah. a, the former director of the archaeological institute. Right. Yeah. And and, uh, and he was a believer in all this Mara snake oil, and yeah. so he went off to become <laughs> to become uh, to to prepare for its return by becoming a snake dancer. Okay. Yes. So he's the only one we ever see. We hear about multiple snake dancers, but he's the only one we see. Right. And he's the one who prepares the doctor to do mental combat with the the Mara and to uh, defeat it in the in the end. There's that 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 really bizarre special effect they do where they have uh, Janet Fielding's face over, super, superimposed over this huge puppet Mara's wide mouth. open mouth. Yeah. 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 That's creepy. <laughs> It was very creepy. And and then in the final confrontation, the snake dancer, whose name I believe is Dojin, yes. also participates mentally in the battle, even though he's not there physically. Right. And the Mara is defeated forever, quote unquote, except not really. Mm. And uh, and then nobody dies, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, for once. For once. Yeah. Nobody, nobody, <laughs> nobody dies in this one. Stephen Moffat, are you on the script crew here? No. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and that's where we end things. So, uh, any other notes about this episode? Any final thoughts, Father Corey? No, no. Like I said, it, it, this is one I enjoyed. I mean, I, I really yeah. did enjoy this one. It was a good story, and it, for for classic Who, it didn't drag quite as bad as some could. But yeah, and I definitely think between again, like I said, between Kinda and this one, I, I like this one much much better. I agree. I, I like this one more because Kinda was just really trippy. It was just really yeah. Yeah. this one was a little less trippy, and I, I kind of enjoyed that. Uh, Jimmy? I liked I liked this one, but I also liked Kenda. I liked some of the the uh, like the parody of British colonialism mm-hmm. in in Kenda, mm-hmm. where you had the the colonial figures becoming progressively more and more whacked out, yeah, and over the top in their in their. Satire. Some of those were really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In this one, I liked the cave system that is obviously built in a sound studio because of all of the absolutely flat concrete floors in the cave. <laughs> yes. And I liked the fact that during the final ceremony where the Mara is trying to retake physical form, we hear all this roaring, and it's the same sound effects that were used on Land of the Lost. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> stacks are coming! Well, no, it's like the grumpy, the Tyrannosaur roaring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right, I think that should do it for, for this discussion. So I, from my point of view, folks, I recommend uh, Snake Dance. It's, uh, I think it's one you should check out if you haven't watched it yet. 
So, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Kathleen B., Brian D., Jack W., Dorothy M., and Lenny B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What did you think of Snake Dance? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. And speaking of Grumpy the T-Rex, we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 11th Doctor story. That's right. Dinosaurs yeah. on a spaceship. <laughs> The episode that exists for one line and is in the title. (laughs) That's right. Snakes on a plane, dinosaurs on a spaceship. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. And Father Corey Stika, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, will you gaze upon the unspeakable? Dare you come face to face with the finally unfaceable? Children, half price. Right. This is going to be fun.